I'm John Cronshaw. I'm Russell Evans. Last week, I mentioned the fact that I wanted to talk a bit about magic. I know you've got a magic system going on in your world. I think it would be good to have a discussion on how you can use magic in your writing. And I also think what we say about magic also applies to any cool futuristic tech that isn't available now. Mm. So these rules can apply to that. For me, the definition of magic is the ability to change reality, be it through super advanced and noble technology or arcane ritual or the willpower. It, that's what magic is. It's the ability to, to change things that would never normally be able to be changed. Yeah. So it's almost like basically things that you can't do. <laughs> yeah. Things that you cannot do. Yeah. Yeah. There are two really good definitions, I suppose, of how you should use magic in literature and one of them is by Orson Scott Card and his basic premise is it's a bit like the every action has an opposite and equal reaction so every bit of magic has a price that should be equal and opposite to the magic used. I think I came up with this idea just because we were talking about Harry Potter and you know as much as the story is fun and everything and you know it obviously resonates with people the magic in that is just so kind of domestic and ubiquitous and not really magic in a way because it is just, okay, these people can do this, but it's so mundane and just so everyday that yeah. it uh, kind of isn't magic anymore, if that makes sense. Well, it's like if you know a word, if you can say a word properly and wave your wand in the right way, you can do it. Like even things like, is it Ava Kedavra, the one that just kills people? Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, anybody can do that if you just learn how to do it. The only thing stopping people is morality, I suppose. I really like magic systems where there is a real cost to yes. using magic. I mean, I never wrote it in the end, but I, I did have an idea for a short story that I wanted to do, which was there were two basically aspects to the magic in this world where every time you use the magic, it got weaker. And the more you use magic, the more you became addicted to using it. And so it was like, I ended up writing a different story under the same name, but it was going to be called No Rehab for Wizards. <laughs> I wanted it to be about this kind of drug rehabilitation group of magic users who then had to kind of get together to defeat someone who was somehow immune to this addiction. Hmm. It was just really powerful, and every time you use magic, it just didn't work in the same way for that person. And so I didn't write it, which is <laughs> a shame, but, you know, whatever. It is what it is. I think, basically, if you're going to cement yourself as a legend in a field, you know, you've got Asimov doing his three laws of robotics, which yeah. get used, and now I think you've got Brandon Sanderson trying to do the same thing with fantasy. He's got his three laws of magic. And I, I think these are really good, actually. I think these are really useful, the three laws. Law number one is an author's ability to solve conflict with magic is directly proportional to how well the reader understands said magic. So this is a really good point. This is basically saying don't go in there and use magic if your reader doesn't understand it. This is about foreshadowing. This is about going, okay, this is what your magic can do. If you've got a magic system, which, for example, is about the manipulation of Earth... And it's all about that throughout the book. And then to defeat the antagonist, the person suddenly turns into a dragon and defeats them with fire. You're just like, what? where did that come from? Mm, yeah. Whereas if they did something cool with Earth magic, then we can accept that as readers. So it is just about saying, be nice to your reader. Let them know what's going on. 
there are different things you can do with your magic that can be surprising but they do need to kind of fit in with that system. Once you build your rules, then you can play with them, can't you? And you can create different characters that, because of the way they think, they find different ways to do things, and that can make a magic system interesting. Which leads us on to rule number two, which is limitations are better than power. Yes. So having a magic system which has clearly defined walls which you can push against, that's more interesting than having an all-powerful all magical thing where you can just do whatever you want without costs, without weaknesses. It's this thing of having limitations. I mean, yeah, we've talked about this so much actually with our podcast is like having limitations, having constrictions around you actually makes you more creative. And so having limitations on a magic system should have the same effect, one would hope. <laughs> yeah. The third rule is expand on what you have already before you add something new. So this is basically saying find extrapolations, find interconnections, find ways you can refigure your magic, find ways you can use it in different ways. Like I said about the idea of the magic having a cost. You know, if you can find a way around that cost, a way to use that cost in different ways, that's when it gets interesting. Or subvert the cost or sort of offset it. Um... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think. I think it's in... Scott Card's um, book about writing fantasy and science fiction, and he has a chapter about this. And just trying to remember it rightly, but he talked about the idea that every time you use magic, you could have a system where the person you love the most is damaged whenever you use magic. And if it's a narcissist, then it's going to have more damaging effects than someone who isn't. Whereas so a sociopath would be sort of omnipotent. This is where you would get the really cool bad guys who are more powerful, you know, I suppose the anime bad guys, isn't it, where yeah. you actually need several people to beat them. You know, they're too powerful for just one protagonist. Some of the magic systems I really like. As I say, I don't like the ones which are vague, mm. and I kind of feel a bit of a push against the ones which are too, almost like, hard, if that makes sense. So yeah, I like that middle ground between where you've got a bit of play, maybe a bit of mysticism, and you can extrapolate the rules you're not told necessarily what the rules are or if you are then okay you only see one part of this magic like in the patrick rothfuss king killer chronicles he's got two magic systems that play against each other one is he literally goes to magical university and learns if with this magic if you apply 10 pounds of pressure here then one pound of pressure will come here mm. you know there's literally like a it applies to physics and there's a you know, a law of diminishing returns and things like that. And then there's this more mystical one where he's not really sure how it works and it's about knowing the hidden names of the elements and things like that. So, like, I really like that because it does kind of play on two ends of the spectrum. Well, it's the difference between the arcane and the academic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the personality of the user and what they need as a character to be or maybe go through in order to have the right mindset to interact with those two different systems. Yeah, I think we've talked about it on the phone before, but the idea of the Terry Pratchett books yes, and, well, the Discworld magic in that and the fact that you do have the witch's magic against the wizard's magic as two really different varieties of magic. One is, as you say, the kind of academic one mm. and then one is more kind of grounded in understanding people and understanding will and being able to affect... It's like sympathetic magic, the wizard's magic is is more about 
Well, like you said, you know, if you apply 10 pounds of pressure here, you get one pound of pressure there. Um, where the, whereas the witches, it's always two forces interacting against each other with the sort of their magic, that like the hedge magic and the sympathetic magic. And one of the best examples of the sympathetic magic in the disc world is always going to be Granny Weatherwax. Yeah. Because she never sits around and, and does spells. There's only ever one point, I think, in any of the books where the witches actually actively make something happen is they turn back time at one point. But um, I think there's two great examples with Granny Weatherwax where she's up against the antagonists. And there's the one where she's in Witches Abroad where she's up against like a fa- an evil fairy godmother who has sort of manipulated the idea of making, of granting wishes. And she creates like a voodoo doll of Granny Weatherwax and she starts stabbing it and putting her in immense pain. But then Granny Weatherwax at one point just puts her hand in a fire and it burns the voodoo doll. And it's the idea that you've opened up a channel between these two things and that's why they're sympathetic and it's more about the mindset of the user that actually defines how that's used instead of it just being a simple matter of like, well, if you do this, then this will happen. And if you do this, then this will happen. And there's a thing with the vampires as well. Where, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where she gets the, uh, what is it, the vampires uh, they, they bite, tea. They, they bite her, yeah. They bite her to try and turn her into a vampire and she starts to crave blood. But then she, again, through willpower, not anything that's super definable, she flips it on them and makes them crave a good cup of tea, which is what yeah. she always craves. <laughs> so, yeah, like I like stuff like that because, I mean, yeah, it's not... Like, this is the thing. I think when you use a term like magic system, mm. it sounds like a very rigid way. Well, yeah, roll 2d20 and yeah, that which, sort of thing. which is not what I'm getting at. I mean, you need, I suppose, rules. The reader doesn't necessarily have to know them inside out. But having rules that are defined for you as a writer, you know, is really useful. And I think, you know, I'm talking to you specifically, Russ, you know, you've got your magical world and there's obviously magic that goes on. And it seems to me that you've thought a lot about how the magic works in this world. Yeah, it's really mostly sympathetic magic. It's about willpower. It's a constant battle. Uh, between the individual and the collective. In this world, if somebody believes they can fly hard enough, then they could fly. But if enough people believed that that wasn't possible and we say be able to witness it and be like, no, that can't happen, then that person would lose the ability to fly. And that's a very basic sort of analogue version of it but i want to be able to use it as a more of an expression of of people like there's a character that in her real life she loved sewing and she philosophized about it and and what it could do and it informs her ability so her paddle her weapon is a giant needle and she carries around an oversized bobbin on her belt with thread on it and she can do things like sew two places together so she can step between them because her philosophy was that, you know, she enjoyed sewing because it, it created connections between things and it, it made larger things out of smaller things. But then it also allows her to do stuff like she has, I don't know whether it's going to be one or both of her eyes are replaced with buttons and she can take a button out of her sewing kit and attach it to something, sew it to whatever, a wall, a cloud, a dog and she will be able to see through that button like it's one of her eyes 
that's not a rule. That's not a spell. It's not something that's written down in a tome somewhere that somebody can achieve. That is entirely personal to her because it's based on her willpower and her mentality. And it'll also give rise to things like the ability to, I can always hear something like one character can maybe always hear another character if they want, no matter what, or they can always see them. And so, so let's say in a go through his machinations and such, he says to Dora in a reassuring way, like I'll always be able to see you. I'll always be able to know where you are. And she accepts that. And in a way wants that because it adds a level of protection. But as the story goes on and he becomes obviously more apparent as the antagonist, it's something she's going to have to fight against because she doesn't want him to always know where she is, to always be able to see her or hear her. And that's where it becomes a little less defined and more about this idea of sympathetic magic, this back and forth of of willpower, so it's like we were talking about, like it's it's this middle ground of the structured versions of these things come from the individual and their sort of experiences, their personality and their philosophy. Yeah. Um, but there are no rules really as well. It's like if you can imagine it and if you can will it, you can do it. The only constriction there though is is can you convince other people that okay, you can do yeah, it. Yeah. So that's so, so that's quite it's like almost a consent magic in a way. It's like Yeah, no that's exactly it's the general consensus. Like because yeah. the general consensus controls many things in that world. Like there's no night and day as such. The sun doesn't rise and the moon doesn't rise, but there is a, there are times when it is light outside and then there are times when it's dark outside and that is almost decided at random by the general consensus of the population. Let's go back to these Sanderson's laws then and just see whether we can make them work with your magic system. I mean, you know, we said about the first law, which is the solving conflicts directly proportional to how well the reader understands the magic. So in your world, I'm just kind of thinking about this. This would be the idea that we will know how powerful will is Mm -hmm. and that other people's will can affect you. So I think you've ticked that. I think that if we're going down this route of... Whether it works or not, does seem to fit. Limitations being better than power. So the limitations come from other people, yeah. other wills, other consciousness. There's going to be a lot of contradictions with the way people see the world and all these different things like pushing might, against each other. There might be places in the city where you just can't do anything like that because uh, just maybe by virtue of the people who live there, or a already sort of preset agreement, like uh, almost like a uh, an accord, something like that. It's it's just it's set in stone. It's seen as completely immutable uh, historically, maybe as such. And so, much like people, you know, like when like traditions and such, people in the real world, in our world, are very bound by tradition, whether they make sense or not. Sometimes, the longer something has existed as a rule or as a a uh, a social construct, the more power it has, even though it really has no power. So yeah, it, it, it's going to play on that idea of as well as maybe like breaking traditions and in some ways like faux pas as forging forward or creating new potentials. I'm just trying to think how this would work with something, say, like, let's say a concept like the devil. 
Yes. Where there's a lot of people who believe in the devil. Like, well, will I have the devil something exist? for that. <laughs> well, I do actually have something for that. Okay. Um, so, heaven and hell exist in the underworld. One of the ferrymen, one of the characters actually, is uh, he's a, a crusader from one of the many crusades because he believes in heaven. I suppose, in some ways, the book kind of points towards heaven and hell not really existing, but it's going to be left up for like whatever interpretation. So heaven in this world, in this underworld, is it's just a construct, obviously, based upon a Judeo-Catholic idea of what heaven is. So it's clouds and pearly gates and, and uh, sort of like a, a happiness that's so constant that it might as well not be happiness. And uh, the idea of what do you do when you get there? What is it? But obviously it's, it's created from mundane minds. So this character... When he manifests, he manifests in heaven. But then he realizes that this can't be right. This can't be heaven. Is this heaven? And he can't deal with it. So he, because he's equipped to, he fights his way out of heaven. Because <laughs> I suppose it's an analog for religion in this world. And his commentary and my philosophies about religion and its effects on people is that heaven in this world, the gates, you can only ever enter. You can't leave. Because like a lot of religious sort of wish thinking, they're constantly looking for justifications as to why it is the way it is and what they need to do in order to make it f- uh, fully actualize it. You know, again, so this actualization idea. So there are missionaries who are allowed out of heaven who go to the city proper to try and convert people because what they've come up with their idea because jesus isn't there god isn't there that's the thing that's he gets to heaven it's like well where's god and they're like oh well that he's not here right now and he's like why wouldn't god be in his heaven <laughs> there's not enough believers here you know we were wrong about the nature of heaven obviously it's also subjective anyway so we send people into the city to to convert people to say hey you know do you want to live this life in this city where everybody's constantly battling each other's wills to just exist, which again, is just like the real world in a lot of ways. So why not come to heaven where everything is a nice constant and everybody believes the same thing and so forth and so on. But it's also a commentary on the lack of faith there, the real lack of faith in that, because if they had enough belief, if they had enough faith, they could create a version of God that may have all the abilities that God would have, but they don't, they can't because their faith is ultimately sort of selfish and a bit shallow so this character fights his way out of heaven loses his way essentially and then becomes a ferryman because of his morality and so forth and so on and that's someone that dora will run into and then you've got another character who in his in real life was a serial killer and was compelled he's insane couldn't help himself it wasn't about morality it wasn't about anything like that he just stabbed people to death until he was caught and, and killed. He ends up in hell because he's also been convinced throughout his life that if this is what you do, you go to hell. But hell in the underworld is kind of like a theme park <laughs> where people can indulge in completely immoral acts because it's still, in a sense, it's still all consenting. So it's like, I don't want to get too dark and I'm not going to go too dark because you could imagine what could happen in the depths of hell. But there's something there to cater to all tastes, shall we say? You know, and it'll go from that sort of, there's the seven circles of hell, the, the, the Dante 
archetype of hell. And so people who want to go and tear other people apart with their bare hands can go to wrath. People who want to engage in the most lewd sexual acts can go to lust. But because it's all essentially still consenting, again, it's mundane. It's banal to an extent that it's like, oh, yeah, here's your ticket. And to go in, you know, you must be this tall to ride this ride (laughs) sort of thing. And so he's like, well, this isn't hell. Is this hell? What? What? I can just... I get to just keep on stabbing people. And then in a way it's kind of like therapy for him because he can't actually kill anyone, but he still gets to stab people to death, you know, in quotations. And so he leaves hell and they're like, okay, bye. See you next time. I'm just thinking that on its own is an interesting story and could be a story in the same world that doesn't necessarily encroach on the main story. Yeah. Like thinking about when you've got these cool ideas that are, you know, they are cool, but are they just going to be a distraction from the main story? Write them in the world. Do another do mm. another novella that is about this character. You know, yeah. there's different ways you can do it. And I'm reading these Warhammer 40,000 books at the minute. And, you know, each of those focuses on several different characters. And they all kind of add to the world and add to the story of this big event, of this big world. And, yeah, you can do the same. Don't be afraid to just go, right, okay, this story here is an interesting part of the world and will add something for interested readers, but it's not actually part of the main story. So instead of trying to shoehorn it in, you know, just separate things off. And I created those concepts more to inform those two characters. So I may have a point in the story or there might be novella where, because essentially a ferryman is kind of like a policeman. So there are things that have to be investigated. So at one point, Dora might have to learn about hell and she might have to learn about heaven and what it is in the underworld. Um, and she may have to go there briefly to look into something or or whatever. But it's, again, it's just flavor. It's like, it's, it's just there in the background. It's a concrete idea that doesn't have to be explored with the reader straight away, but it informs things for me as the writer of these characters, because the ultimate twist with those two characters is that when Inigo sort of turns bad, there are ferrymen who align with him and there are ferrymen who align with Dora. And the twist is that the crusader, who was supposed to be this moral bastion, is a bad guy because he is so jaded, like Inigo, by the fact that there is no God, at least here there is no God, and that heaven is a pale, like imitation of what it should be he's like he wants to go with inigo's plan which is to ultimately end everything whereas the serial killer who was obviously a horrific person in the real world he cannot actually hurt anybody the way he used to be able to so he's actually when you sort of get over that he's not a bad person like if you see what i mean like he's, he couldn't help his compulsion but in a place where his compulsion can do no harm then you get to see the rest of him as a character. And he, and that's the, the sort of, maybe it's my own ideas on morality and religion and such and so forth. Well, obviously these because I'm writing it, but <laughs> that's the twist I kind of wanted is that you would have this character that she would look at as like, well, you're, you're a murderer. You murdered people and you, you hurt them. Like just because you wanted to, or you were compelled to, but now you are actually one of my my, my allies and I have to get over my preconception of what you were as a person or like at least as a, as a living person and accept you for what you are now in this world where the rules are very different. What are the costs of your magic then? What is there anything that 
by doing the magic it's going to be damage or you know it's it's not about it's more about limitation than cost really i think I that mean, I suppose there will be what you were saying there is a kind of cost of not using it when necessary yes like if you can't actualize that's the cost the cost is yourself is to be subsumed by the id uh, by the collective unconscious the less you actualize the more of yourself you lose so it's almost like a do or die type of magic system but there certainly can be collateral damage from it and i think that's something uh, dora will will have to learn is that there may be times where i was thinking of an example that again i may or may not use but she doesn't realize the power of colloquialism there's a bit where well, i say a bit uh, an idea i'd thought of a scene where she has to break up some kind of dispute or she has to be the arbiter of it and she'll casually turn to somebody who's made her incredibly angry because she feels as though they are immoral or they are showing no empathy and she'll say something like have a heart and all of a sudden they'll actually have a heart but they'll die because of it she won't all of a sudden realize that she has the ability to make people alive again if you know what i mean it's almost like a freak occurrence but she will wipe them out from the underworld, like make them disappear because they essentially qualify again as being alive in that moment. And so the idea is that if you're not careful about how you express your will upon people and if you just let it be willy-nilly and if you let your emotions, which obviously fuel your willpower to an extent, be expressed in too abstract or subjective a manner, there can be side effects which are unforeseen i don't know whether this is something you've written down what the rules are what the consequences are anything like that it might be useful i mean it sounds to me like you know anyway so Mm. i think it might be interesting if i try and write my three rules yeah i think that'd be good i think writing down just some hard limits of the world hard limits of your magic would be really useful actually just so you don't make the mistake of okay, I really want this cool thing to happen. (laughs) Yeah, I I think one of them is it would have to be that your magic magic, you know, in quote marks again, is uh, an expression of your individualism. That'll be something to do. And then obviously you'll um, start work on your second draft. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to come back next time and see how you got on with your outline and second draft and all that and whether you started doing the rewrite. So remember, you can follow me on the Twitter. It's at JL Cronshaw. And you can find me on Instagram. It's John Cronshaw Author. If you haven't done so already, please do check out the Stop Booking Around book. It's a lot of the stuff we've talked about in this podcast. And it helps fund hosting for the podcast feed. So that would be really helpful. So until next time, cheerio. Bye.